Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Shelter is more than a luxury in the winter. It's necessary for survival. From the frozen Arctic to the Great Plains, indigenous people developed building methods with natural materials. Some of those methods were lost over the years, but some people are reviving traditional winter home building techniques to make sure the knowledge is passed down to future generations. We're talking traditional winter homes coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A new study finds that Canadian coal mines contribute nearly all of the selenium found in a Montana lake. Aaron Bolton with Montana Public Radio has more. For decades, coal mines along British Columbia's Elk River have sent large amounts of selenium into Lake Kukanusa in northwest Montana. Selenium is naturally occurring, but at high levels can harm fish reproduction. Researchers wanted to know how much natural selenium came from the lake's largest tributary, the Kootenai River. Study author and U.S. Geological Survey hydrologist Merrill Storb. Over the last decade, the Elk River is contributing 95% of the selenium into Kukanusa from those two sources. That's striking because the Elk River accounts for a quarter of all waters flowing into Lake Kukanusa, but is contributing nearly all of the selenium. Montana and British Columbia tribes are pushing U.S. and Canadian officials to shut the mines down. In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton. The House Natural Resources Committee will host a roundtable titled Strengthening Historic and Cultural Preservation. The roundtable is in commemoration of Native American Heritage Month. The panel will discuss how Congress can better support and improve historic and cultural preservation. Panelists include tribal historic preservation officers and tribal leaders. Members of Congress expected to attend are House Natural Resources Committee Ranking Member Raul Grujalva, Indian and Insular Affairs Subcommittee Ranking Member Teresa Legere Fernandez, and Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee Ranking Member Melanie Stansberry. The roundtable will take place in person in Washington, D.C. Wednesday and will also be live-streamed. Two small business owners rooted in western Alaska have spent countless hours preparing for a busy holiday season as people gear up for gift-giving. KNOM's Ava White has more. For artists with small businesses, the holiday season kicks off well before the temperature starts to change. Shirley Hooch of Ammonic is a Yupik jeweler who specializes in handmade earrings made of caribou antler and walrus ivory. She says this inspired her to begin making jewelry. The first earrings she ever created, she says, remained one of her most popular sellers, and they resemble traditional Yupik masks. She says she never makes more than five pairs of the same earrings, so each pair is truly unique. By supporting artists and jewelers and carvers, you only get one-of-a-kind treasures, you know. Nikki Corbett of Bethel is the owner of a popular cuspuck company called So Yupik. Corbett says that when you support Alaska Native artists through your purchases, you have the chance to engage and connect with their culture. I don't want people to be wearing the same ones, but I really try to just make each one individualized with its trimming and um, the, you know, accent um, hoods or cowls or... 
She says she makes sure to set good intentions because if she doesn't, she risks passing negative energy through the piece that she's sewing and that can transfer to the customer. I'm Ava White. The state of Oregon recently announced its first tribal affairs director. Shanna McConville-Radford will serve in that position. Radford recently was the deputy executive director of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. She has more than 15 years of experience with tribal relations, policy, and intergovernmental affairs. Radford will help with communications and collaborations with the nine tribes in the state. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Skugtash, support by Ramona Farm. For over 40 years, Ramona's American Indian Foods has revived tepary beans, panoli, traditional wheat flowers, and more. Delivery for your holiday gatherings, available on orders placed at store.ramonafarms.com. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, hosting this week in Anchorage, Alaska. In the Arctic, where temperatures plummet well below zero, shelter from the elements is essential for survival. The indigenous people who live there traditionally turn to the materials they had on hand, ice and snow, to keep them safe in the winter months. Other tribes develop time-tested methods to build sturdy structures in the wintertime. Today on our show, we'll talk with master igloo builders and other traditional knowledge keepers about techniques used to construct winter homes. We'll also explore their efforts to preserve that knowledge, and we welcome you to the conversation. Have you ever built an igloo or another type of traditional winter dwelling? Tell us about the winter homes and shelters your people built by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line now is... Mayor Solomon Awa. He is in Iqaluit, Nunavut Territory in Canada, and he is the mayor of Iqaluit, a community located in the far eastern portion of the Nunavut Territory. It's about 500 miles from the coast of Greenland. Mayor Awa is a nook. Hello, Mayor. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, uh, hello. Uh, uh, good afternoon. Um, thank, thank you for asking me to be in your host. Absolutely. Appreciate you taking the time, Mayor. In Roseburg, Oregon, Roseburg, Oregon, we have Jesse Jackson, who's on the line. He's the Education Programs Officer and a member of the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians. Hello, Jesse. Welcome to Native America Calling. Well, walk with you, everyone. Good morning. Uh, pleasure to be here and honored to be speaking with you all today. Pleasure to have you on the show as well, Jesse. And joining us from Durant, Oklahoma, we have Brenner Billy. He is the 
Public Programs Manager at the Choctaw Cultural Center. He is Choctaw. Hello, Brenner. Thanks for joining the show. Hello, to and thank you for having me here. Hello, to you as well. And Jesse, let's go ahead and start with you. Uh, tell us more about your tribe's traditional winter house. How were they built? Where were they constructed? What kind of materials? So we were, uh, our tribe followed the seasonal round for time immemorial. Um, for thousands and thousands of years, uh, our, our uh, language is called Dagelma. We are the Dagelma people. And that tra- directly translated means people of the river. And so the river was central to our life and the the, um, the plants and the animals that surrounded the rivers uh, really decided where we were at and when we were at. So we, we had seasonal rounds, as I said before. Um, we followed the fish as they went upriver. So when uh, spring runs would come, we would, we would head um, upriver during the summer months into what we call the high country. And we would leave our winter villages where we were much more largely gathered in familial groups. We were a matrilineal tribe, so our, our mothers and our grandmothers um, had most of the political power in our tribe. And so uh, we, during the winters, we enjoyed large familial group settings in our plank houses that were mostly constructed from cedar planks um, and were subterranean. And those uh, ranged anywhere from one to two feet to up to four to six feet deep in the ground. And so we enjoyed uh, our plank houses and our large familial groups during the winter where we'd come together and uh, do a lot of processing, do a lot of storytelling, do a lot of the things that our tribe requires many people to be a part of. And then uh, after the winter and spring, we would, um, we always, we're we're a fire culture. We're, uh, as most Native Americans were, uh, we're also a fire culture. And so seems like whenever we're leaving, whether we leave to go up to the highlands um, and we're leaving our larger plank houses to go into smaller familial groups uh, for the summertime, or when we're leaving the highlands and coming back, we're always lighting uh, the areas on fire. So um, in the fall, when we return back down to our winter camps, we'll light the high country on fire and do uh, blessing ceremonies to essentially pray to creator for the fire to do its job and to, and to, have the balance with uh, with our water spirits and to, and to invite the water and the snow to return so that we have the healthy circle that we're, that we're um, supporting. And then equally, when we would leave the uh, lowlands, uh, we would set those on fire uh, to be burned um, and to be healthy upon our return. Oh, this is fascinating, Jesse. So the plank homes, the cedar plank homes that you've described, uh, buried anywhere from two feet to six feet deep in the ground, were these built seasonally or were they permanent dwellings that you folks would return to every winter? So that's kind of a mixed, uh, you know, for the most part, the structures were permanent, lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, the planks, depending on the size, some you know we had uh, what I would say large and medium-sized plank houses for our winter gatherings. But in um, uh, in the summertime, when we'd head up into the uh, in the mountains and have our smaller familial groups, there we were known to have smaller uh, plank houses than usually for elders and and um, and people of uh, significance in the tribe. So our sto- storytellers, our elders. Um, our our uh, our chiefs, pe- people that uh, had reverence, and so um, sometimes uh, those 
winter structures, the planks themselves were highly valued and took a long time to make. And so sometimes we would take the, those planks with us and just leave the, the bones of the structure for when we returned. But on some of our plank houses, they were just simply so big and so important that they were left uh, and, and maintained uh, yearly. Mm-hmm. Now, were these groups of families that would live in each one of these plank houses? Individual yeah, yeah, families so, or large? Okay. Yeah, I'd say large family, extended family. So today uh, in one plank house would be, by today's standards, it would be like a possibly, um, you know, like a um, my mother and my aunt and my uncle, let's say those three. And the, all of their family and extended family would be in the winter plank house together. And so our mm. large familial group would be uh, assembled. Um, as I said previously, we'd work on many things, whether it was uh, um, regalia or clothing um, or making leather or processing uh, and packing salmon or processing and packing um, elderberries or a, a lot of the food sources that we had, um, we would be able to collect in the fall. But during the winter when we're all together is how we really um, use many hands to make easy work of the processing. So. Um, and then, then in the summer, when we would leave the winter homes, that's when we, uh, those groups like um, would split up more. And so we all head up into a general area together, but our camps would be located um, within miles of each other, but not with immediately with each other. So in the summer, I might leave up and go with my brother, and we might have a more intimate camp where it's my brother and my family's camp. Yet our grandmother is pretty close, and our parents are kind of close, so we can still support them, and we can do stuff with them, but we don't all enjoy the same um, dwelling together. And Jesse, your people, your traditional homelands there in what is now Oregon, what was the the climate like during the winter months in terms of, of temperature and precipitation, and what made these cedar plank homes so well suited for that environment? So we uh, here in Southern Oregon, we enjoy four distinct seasons, and um, the the winter time here uh, can be um, not by Midwest standards uh, real harsh, um, but for uh, Pacific Northwest standards, we do get into the uh, uh, we we get below freezing, um, usually not more than ten to twenty degrees below freezing. So the the plank house, uh, and and then and then because we're so close to the Pacific Ocean we have a lot of precipitation and that usually is true in three months of the or three uh, seasons um, our uh, fall uh, winter and spring in fact we actually identified five seasons uh, traditionally as our tribe we had a we had kind of two springs um, but the the cedar plank house was uh, exceptionally important to have uh, to, to keep things dry as most uh, people know cedar is uh, resistant to rotting and so um, you know a country where it's really wet, our use of cedar allowed us um, physically to use it because it's straight grained. And so we're able to split long lengths of uh, lumber using uh, horn and mallets. And so uh, physically, the structure of the wood uh, works for us to be able to build with it. It doesn't rot. Um, and, and, then, uh, and then to be able to build in a subterranean um dwellings in this country is very difficult in contemporary construction you don't see very many um, basements dug in oregon like you do out in colorado and some of the drier areas of the united states and so these areas where the plank houses were erected were 
very special and and um and the excavation efforts uh are specific to the site because it's just simply really difficult to find areas that don't have a lot of groundwater so um Mm -hmm. we tend to see uh on knolls um uh, slight inclines um places that provide natural drainage because um you know every foot that you dig down into the earth is um is you know more likely to have groundwater so it wasn't like we could just put these structures anywhere they were in the um, topographical areas that made sense for us to erect them. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for all this background. Really, really interesting, insightful information that Jesse Jackson is sharing today on our show. He is the Education Programs Officer with the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua, Tribe of Indians in Roseburg, Oregon. And we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to ask Jesse about how much of this knowledge still remains among his people with regard to how to build these cedar plank houses that were built uh, in the ground in order to maintain proper uh, levels of dryness and also uh, protection against the elements. And encourage anybody listening today, if you're familiar with your tribe's traditional building methods when it came to the winter months, those cold months when the snow would fall and the temperatures would drop, what kind of homes were you folks living in during that time? What did it take to build those homes? What types of materials? Where did you build them? Uh, what part of the, what part type, what type of land? Was it on a hilltop? Was it near the trees? Uh, we'd like to know this information. So give us a call 1-800-996-2848. A Lakota artist and a Native Hawaiian cultural practitioner are among this year's MacArthur Fellows. They were awarded what are often called the Genius Grants for outstanding accomplishments in their fields. We'll hear about their work and their passion to represent Indigenous culture on the next Native America Calling. The Association on American Indian Affairs welcomes all to Tribal Museums Day, December 2nd through the 10th. Tribal museums may offer no-cost or reduced admission, art markets, and cultural demonstrations. Tribal Museums Day honors Native nations as the experts of their diverse cultures. A map of tribal museums and more is available at indian-affairs.org slash tribalmuseumsday. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. Traditional Native winter homes are our focus today, and we're hearing about the different styles of structures developed in different regions. Tell us about how your tribe traditionally prepares for winter time. Our number to the studio, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And a reminder, you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to other types of Native programming by downloading the NV1 app to your smart device. Jesse Jackson is on the line right now. And Jesse, before break, you were sharing with us all the intricacies of building these plank homes, cedar plank homes there uh, where your people are located in, in southern Oregon. And tell us, how much of this traditional knowledge is still maintained? And uh, do you folks still build homes like this on occasion? You know, unfortunately, our tribe uh, was uh, 
nearly wiped out completely of culture. Uh, we're um, one of the many tribes in Oregon that uh, were um, uh, most of our tribal members in the past were either killed um, or rounded up and put onto one of two reservations, namely the Selets Reservation and the Grand Ronde Reservation that are both located hundreds of miles north uh, in Oregon uh, near near Salem, our state capital. So it's been a long journey for us to revitalize many aspects of our culture, uh, including our uh, our dwellings. Um, and uh, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Grand Ronde tribal member Don Day, who has uh, been working to revitalize the, the, um, the education, the culture around plank houses for many, many years. Uh, Don's an elder, um, and he helped us, uh, our tribe, uh, erect a, a replica down at the Canyonville Pioneer Indian Museum. And we're very proud of the knowledge uh, sharing and the collaboration that went into that event. Um, and uh, right now, our tribe is looking at a System of Cares uh, grant um, to um, build additional traditional structures for our tribe. And um, we are uh, hoping that a full-size plank house uh, will be in our um, near future. And Jesse, what can modern builders learn from from this knowledge of how you folks built homes for centuries there in what's now Southern Oregon, using cedar and other materials, local materials, and, and being able to dig down into the earth? Is that still, is that technology still relevant today? Yeah, so there's so much to learn, you know, whether it's uh, from the excavation techniques or whether it's from the kind of minimalist uh, point of view of being able to maximize a living uh, structure with minimal um, intrusion to the natural environment. Um, the excavation, as I said before, is uh, the, the, the sites and the site prep um, are, are um, you know, involve education that's still very prudent uh, with slope specialists and, um, and excavation companies today. Um, you know, one thing I didn't mention is uh, we were also, you know, these, these, these floors of these uh, places uh, were extreme, kept extremely clean. And a lot of times, um, especially in the ones that we were able to dig deeper, uh, four to six feet in the ground, having dry storage throughout the winter wet months, it's very, very um, important uh, for food storage. And so we oftentimes would have uh, hidden caches um, of uh, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of camas bulbs and other food sources um, so this wasn't just a place for wintering people. It was also these were places to winter foods uh, to essentially mm. get us through the harsh winter months. And were these earthen floors or were you using cedar as flooring yeah. as well? Yeah, mostly always earthen, but dry and kept, uh, you know, swept and hard packed. So uh, very clean uh, by the, um, you know, most people have a, have a real big misconception of that. You know, the, uh, you know, our tribe or tribes generally lived in these poor conditions and had dirt floors. And so, um, you know, in contemporary society, if you if you have a dirt floor, then you're you're associated with being dirty. And I want to really uh, hope listeners um, don't equivocate uh, dirtiness in a bad life. We lived in a land of plenty where our people were very clean and enjoyed very nice uh, clothing that we made. Um, and so this wasn't a, a destitute environment with people barely getting by. This was an environment of thousands and thousands of years of evolved cultural knowledge handed down by storytellers and through cultural artisans 
to uh, keep continuing to make life better with every generation. Mm -hmm. Well, my people built homes in the Southwest using using adobe bricks made of mud. So I certainly yeah. relate yeah. to to the importance of dirt and these types of materials and and how yeah. how what excellent material, what excellent building materials uh, they're able to to provide for our homes. Yeah. Jesse, thanks again for coming in and, and sharing this information. Just great, great information coming from uh, the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians in Roseburg, Oregon. And let's move on now to Mayor Solomon Awa, who is up in the Nanavut Territory in far eastern Canada. And Mayor, again, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And uh, I'd like to talk with you more about traditional igloo building. And I know that a couple of years ago, you helped out with the construction of a, a massive igloo that was used for traditional gatherings among your people. However, you expressed a little bit of hesitation before agreeing to the project. Tell us why that was. Um, <clears throat> it's not really that uh, hesitant, but um, I was kind of thinking that, um, um, okay, we can learn something here. There's, um, uh, you know, um, from the outside, uh, you think you know almost everything, but there's some little bit of um, uh, missing information uh, that people need to know as well. But first, let me um, talk about uh, winter um, dwelling. We have, um, in tradition, we had uh, uh, a thought house which we call the kamak in indicated words. Kamak is the um, made out of um, soil that is uh, from the ground. Um, I'll make an example of um, those who sell uh, grass. Uh, you know, they took the soil with them um, in southern parts of the the, the world. Uh, they they. Uh, grow uh, green grass and then uh, they sell it to uh, uh, the customer. What they do is they, they cut it up with the um, um, roots in them. That's the soil. That's what I'm talking about, the soil part, is that um, they remove the soil like a square and they make into the kumak. That kumak also can be made from the rock, not all the way up. Uh, some of these um, make using the um, uh, whale bones, so maybe uh, not the the one that uh, we had uh, all the time, but those are such as um, uh, beluga whale, not beluga whale, um, bohe whale, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. They also use the um, the heather. Uh, part of the um, uh, insulation, they they use that. You know, you need to have an inner part and insulation, and then outer part. The outer part uh, is also made from the the skin, whether it's caribou skin or the seal skin. Um, with the modern uh, materials that were coming up, that they used the uh, canvas uh, material later on. But uh, those are were the dwelling uh, back in the days, and then modern world start to come in, and then people start to build uh, wooden houses. Now we are in the wooden houses, 
living in a wooden house okay. uh, with okay. um, with the fl- uh, flush toilets and TV and all that stuff. Um, uh-huh. with the uh, cell phones work, cell phone working. Anyway, um, that is the comeback um, is the um, dwelling that if you're going to stay in that spot um, for the winter. And also that um, you're sort of um, um, in the springtime when there's you can start uh, setting up your tent that you you leave the hummock behind and uh, you open it up there so that um, it will dry out. I don't know if they would uh, come back to that for the next winter. Um, Mayor, that, when, when, I'm sorry, when, about what time of the winter were folks living in igloos then? I, it sounds like igloos were probably temporary structures as well. Maybe just like when people were traveling. I'm not quite clear. I was going to go there and you asked me ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've just, you know, we just don't have a whole lot of time on the show. And I was just curious, you know, a little bit more about the igloos since it's winter time and that's mentioned that um, interest folks um, there there is the uh, permanent structure for the winter made from the uh-huh. house there's also igloo made from the snow uh, we don't have a tree which is mean that the snow we have is uh, packed um, almost like um, grabable like you can cut it up make a carving or you can cut it up to make a snow block and then you built the igloo. The, this is a temporary one when you are traveling um, from place to place or when you go out, um, uh, go harvesting caribou or seal or something like that, and, or even when you are uh, trapping. Uh, you leave in the morning and you go where you want to go by dark team. And you build the igloos, you cut the blocks and make it into a dome shape. Uh, depending on um, how many people are traveling with you, you make that size. You don't have a print, blueprint to uh, build it, but you make the size of your uh, number of people. Uh, for me and my buddy, there's only two of us. Uh, I could probably make about um, 12 feet diameter. And if, if the whole family was seven or ten people, uh, probably uh, makes about 15, di- 15 feet diameter, something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, mostly for the overnight, sometimes um, if the weather is not really good, uh, they sort of stay in, um, in the igloo uh, waiting for the weather to clear up. That, that might take about maybe one, one or two nights because the igloo is also use uh, heated with a uh, oil lamp pulled up and because it's heated it's probably about uh, zero to plus one um inside when it's minus 40 outside uh it's sort of a um, milk the inner part and when it's getting thinner and they when they have to overnight again they kind of uh, recover the outside part to make it thicker that's um, that's the the home part. The other one is the we call a is the 
a sort of a community hall. This is the uh, big one that we did not long ago. Um, I think it's the, that one, the last one that I did was about 50 feet diameter, uh, probably almost uh, two-story high. That's, um, you, can, you can put in about uh, 200 people in it. Um, okay, that's, and this is built out of ice, ice and snow? This this structure, fifty um, feet. No, it's only snow. Um, okay. It's a packed snow. Yeah, like I mentioned, that uh, in the tree line you don't get any packed snow, but with that, with the tundra you get a snow drift, the snow drift uh, packed snow on the ground. That's amazing. Fifty feet. That's a huge, huge structure built from snow. How long would it take to to build a structure like that? Or a, a dwelling like that, Mayor? Um, for the last time, um, well, my, this was our first time. We know all about it. We learned from the stories, and this was our first time because they haven't built it for a long time because we got the structure of the community hall. Um, the, this one was take about a week. Um, in the past, uh, they were the stories say that at least about three days. Uh, those who are know how to cut up, the, know how to put the block in place um, uh, with their eyes, not within a measuring tape. <laughs> yeah. Well, like you described, no blueprints, no measuring tapes. Yeah, I mean these folks were just. Um, so, Mayor, it sounds like you've got a lot of these skills uh, intact, and you know how to do a lot of this building still. How about other folks in the community? Do they have these same skills and the same knowledge to build these traditional igloos and other structures, winter structures? Uh, some of us do, um, because uh, when we go snowmobiling, uh, we don't have any more doctrine, but some of them do have. Not, not for the whole um, hunting purposes, for tourist purpose. Um, sometimes the snow machine breaks down, and then people have to uh, stop and make igloo. So that's uh, we're still doing that today, um, even though there are built cabins around the area that we can go to to uh, save ourselves from the cold. Mm-hmm. And what's the hardest part of building an igloo? I mean, I remember as a kid trying to build an igloo in in my backyard, and I could get the walls up, but when I started trying to create the dome, it would just cave in. I couldn't get the dome to stay up intact. What's the toughest part? Um, the toughest part is the making the foundation right. Mm. Um. I think every house, whether it's um, um, cement, whether it's concrete, whether it's uh, metal or wood or igloo, the the foundation is the one that will make it uh, stand up. If you don't have a great foundation, um, your igloo will not be uh, probably not standing up because it's uh, fragile, and when I teach uh, how to build igloo, when you cut the block, you have to know, you have to be able to lift the block 
and you and you have to know not to break the wine glasses. If you break the wine glasses, you lost the glass. If you break the <laughs> snow block, you lost it. You you. So the wine glasses uh, for them, for some people, it's very precious item. Your igloo block is a very precious item. You don't want to waste another five, ten minutes trying to cut up another block. Um, so uh, that's how I teach them that uh, you cut the block that you can carry, you can manipulate. You don't cut the block uh, three feet wide because you can't carry that. If you cannot carry that, you're going to break it. All right. Mayor Solomon Awa from Nanavut Territory in Canada, explaining to us uh, the traditional art of building an igloo for the winter months. We're going to talk to Brenner Billy from Choctaw Country when we come back. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Share your knowledge or ask a question about traditional forms of winter housing among different tribes. Plenty of time. 1-800-996-2848. Let's take a caller from right here in Anchorage, Alaska. Michael, listening on KNBA. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Michael. Are you there? Oh, I don't think we've got Michael yet. Let's take another caller. Chanupa, listening up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Ropey Atunka for taking this call on, you know, making homes. Um, Sean, I want to share this understanding with you real quick and to the gentleman that was talking. Uh, Grandma Stella Hollowhorn Bear, she lives just about maybe 12 miles east of the res here. A few years ago, an organization came in from Casper, Wyoming called Souls Anchor. And she got nominated to get a house built for her, and nobody knew how to make a straw molding. Lo and behold, they got a hold of Chinooper here, so I went over and met the guy, and his name was Scott Narf. So me and Scotty got together and his crew, and I showed him how to make this these straw bales and coat it with this plaster that sealed it, okay? And then we made the roof for her, and today, Grandma, you know, Stella, still living in that, you know, that uh, straw bale house with her grand grandboys and her her only living daughter. People can do this from ancient times. Even the teepee. We built a prefab teepee house for another family, and our people have the ingenuity to do these things, but... Because times back in the days were scarce because of certain activity. A lot of our people lost them kind of characteristics of helping others get out of, you know, the, the way of living from ancient times. They say this in our culture 
Trocata que a oiate que ni um unk de hanta, kipi wonji um kit hagaokte, chaheta hanta kulena wosuta aikwaki ki he, wakhat hanka kichi manetuki, wanianka pina unchi makha, he woke in nichukte. It's easier to say it in the language that way because <laughs> if you really believe in helping, you know, our children, our elders, and the people, things are possible. And for that gentleman right. that was speaking there, hey, thank him for doing an excellent job of making homes for his people. And thank you for taking right. my call. I'm going to listen. All right, Sean. Have a good one. Oh. Okay. You too, Chanupa. Thank you for sharing that uh, traditional knowledge uh, and home building from up in Pine Ridge. And let's go to our next guest who is in Durant, Oklahoma, Brenner Billy with the Choctaw Cultural Center. Brenner, thank you again for joining us today to talk about traditional winter homes. And tell us about the, the winter homes there of the Choctaw. How were they made? What types of tools? What types of materials? Give us the lowdown. Yeah, so uh, again, thank you, Ariakoke, for having me here. Um, our Choctaw homes are, in our language, call them chukas. And specifically, we talk about the winter home. And the winter home, they were mostly constructed out of, like, wood beams. Uh, we lived in, originally in Mississippi and parts of Alabama and down to almost the coasts of um, the Gulf of Mexico today. And we have a lot of different regions uh, within that, those states and those areas. So uh, different types of homes, ephemeral, or ephemeral materials, ecology of things that would be harvested at the time would differ the, the insulation or the construction. But for a template, I can tell you, it's more of like a type of hardwood beams would actually be um, made more like a canopy in four posts in the center of the house. And then the house would actually have uh, other beams probably about six feet tall. And there could be, depending on the location, it could be around sapling size or a little bit bigger to maybe three to four inches in thickness and then be tamped into the ground in more of like a uh, overlapping, kind of like a, um, like a coil. And so that would actually be the outside rim or the outside boundary of the chuka itself and the canopy would be risen probably close to eight foot tall, um, maybe a little bit taller. And so from there, the raptors will be actually leaned on uh, to the outside wall and to the core parts. Uh, with this happening, uh, we are able to lash um, using binding materials of textiles or even river cane to actually put these things together and um, the part of the insulation or covering on the walls of the, the house itself would be made out of a, a kind of like a daub or a mixture of a clay, sand, and any type of textile material uh, or hay or grass or something like that. that um, would actually become thick enough to actually stick. And even weaving pieces of river cane as we stripped it, we use it for basketry and even weapons in our region but also it's kind of like how you would lay concrete today uh, with rebar inside the concrete. So we kind of did that to actually reinforce the, the stability of that uh, clay mixture. For that, uh, we call it, um, like, lukfinia is what we call clay, but when you add it together, you would actually make this kind of dog mixture, and we just kind mm -hmm. of call it mud or luchuk. And so we have a program at the Cultural Center where we actually 
recreate this. And this is what we would actually uh, show people how to do this and actually put it together. So you're building some of these houses then as part of a cultural project. This sounds really exciting. Um, how often do you build them? Oh, uh, well, annually, every year. So we try to do it to our um, historical accounts. We call it the Itifabasas, which is kind of like a, a posting online. Uh, anyone can look at them, um, read them, just a little bit of information, postings. And one of them relates to, you know, the Choctaw people would, once they started to feel the first chill of um, during their seasons, changing seasons, then they would start to begin the construction of the house. And it took, you know, maybe a day to build the frame and another day to actually harvest materials. And so it could take up to, you know, a day to a week, depending on the resources that are around you. And so that today we do describe that and then we get the hands-on interaction of people recreating and redoing it. And then we tear it down uh, within the year so that it can be redone again. So people have that experience connecting to what their ancestors had been been a part of. Now, Brenner, the the Choctaw people traditionally were located in the southeast, what's now the southeastern United States, and now you folks are located there uh, in southern, kind of south central Oklahoma. Do you have to take a different approach replicating these homes in Oklahoma as compared to how they would have been built traditionally in your ancestral homelands? Good question. I believe that, you know, when Adair was kind of coming here and taking some accounts um, as he was observing our people during the 1700s, uh, it was last accordance was around the 1770s, I believe. And then right after that, we started to transition into the 1800s of using um, log cabins. And so in our exhibit, we actually have a replication of that that people can see. It's called like a iti ibana, which is like two things fitting together. And it's more of like how you would see frontier houses. And so the the observation or the understanding is that we as Choctaw Nation were removed uh, from Mississippi but we still have relatives and cousins that still live in Mississippi. And for us to remove as a Choctaw nation, we were given that um, sovereignty status from the Americans around the 1830s, 1832, officially after the Removal Act. But the majority of our cousins and relatives that still are Choctaw that were hidden and moved to the swamps and different parts of the landscapes that are not appeasable to Americans they actually became the bands that we know today. And so there's still Mississippi band Choctaw Indians that live in Mississippi. And we have the Moa, and then we have the Gina, and those are all different tribes, or Choctaw tribes, or bands, I'm sorry, that live within Louisiana area. So we still have understanding and recognition. Um, not everyone's federally recognized, except for the Mississippi band and the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. But to kind of go through mm-hmm. that blueprint, we try to bring everything or we try to relate to everything that we brought from our homelands was still in, encapsulated as the old understanding from where we originally came from. So even materials are different here in Oklahoma. We try to replicate as much as we can. Uh, the southeast area of Oklahoma, which is majority of Choctaw country, has just a good replication of some of the things from Mississippi. So we have River King here in Oklahoma. We have hickory, we have oak. Um, only thing we don't have is like palmetto, which is some things that can be used for the thatching. Uh, sometimes we can use a grass thatching for like binas, which is kind of like a, a temporary or a um, 
yeah, more of like a less temporary tent or house, but uh, not necessarily a chukka. But there's a lot of things that we use for our understanding of the ecology around us that we are able to be resourceful. And so uh, I think that um, those resources are still available to us today. All right. Well, that's great to hear that uh, a lot of those indigenous materials that you folks had uh, in the Mississippi area are still available there where you are in Oklahoma. Appreciate all this cultural knowledge that you're sharing with us today, Brenner. And at this point, I want to go ahead and bring another person into our conversation, Dr. Brad Lieb, who's based in Ridgeland, Mississippi. Dr. Lieb is the director of the Chickasaw Archaeology for the Chickasaw Nation. And Dr. Lieb, uh, thank you for joining the show. Welcome. And uh, listening to Brenner describe the traditional winter homes of the Choctaw, um, I I know that the Choctaw and the Chickasaw, um, they're similar tribes in terms of uh, lineage and culture. Were the Chickasaw winter homes similar to what the the Choctaw homes uh, that Brenner has described in terms of how they were built? Chukma, yes. Hello. The Chickasaw winter houses, Hashtola uh, Chukka, they were very similar to what Brenner described. And uh, Choctaws and Chickasaws were uh, one people together at, at, at some time in the past, and our, our stories tell us the people split uh, while searching for a land of life. And the languages are very similar, and the winter houses were very similar. But the Chickasaws settled in a part of Mississippi called the Blackland Prairie, and it was a kind of a grassland area, which is a little bit of an exception because most of Mississippi was heavily forested. And so on this Blackland Prairie landscape that stretched across northeast Mississippi and down into Alabama, there are a series of ridges or bluffs that overlook uh, swampy stream bottoms. What what were swampy stream bottoms? Uh, beaver dams, things of that nature, cypress and tupelo gum that are today usually agricultural row crop fields. But on the chalky, uh, and so the, the underlying uh, soil and, and bedrock of this area is a marine uh, marl or chalk or a sort of a rotten limestone. And so there's fossil shells in it, and it weathers into a white clay, a white or gray clay. And so on these ridges overlooking these uh, swampy bottoms were where Chickasaws uh, would establish their towns and villages and their house groups. And uh, the winter house, or Hashtola Chukka, was uh, built by sinking posts into post holes in a uh, sort of apsidal or circular uh, pattern about 18 to 25 feet in diameter, uh, some some larger than that. But those those uh, locusts or heart pine posts uh, would be sunk in the ground, often charred uh, by fire to prevent uh, insects and rot. And then the structure would be uh, fastened with uh, like cordage or vines or rawhide thongs and uh, then it would be uh, laughed with uh, split cane, river cane, or hickory or white oak splits. And then that hole would be daubed over with the clay and grass mixture, kind of oh. like a plaster okay. that that would uh, then be whitewashed with the white clay and, and, and shell fragments. And so the, a pit, right. there would be a pit next to the house that would serve as a, as a water uh, reservoir and also a 
they would learn the children to swim in these, you know, 10-foot diameter, 3-foot deep pits next to the winter houses. Swimming, swimming pools, it sounds like. <laughs> Early indigenous yeah. swimming pools. Well, Brad, I think, you know, listening like to, to Mayor Awa and talk about homes up in igloos, of course, up in Nunavut uh, territory there in Canada, and I think a lot of folks think, well, Mississippi, it couldn't get that cold. The winters couldn't be that harsh. But um, what were the conditions, the specific winter conditions that these homes that you're describing were designed to address? Right. Uh, the, the the climate is temperate and uh, often warms up. But we do get cold fronts where uh, snow and freezing rain and sub-freezing temperatures uh, can persist for days. And so uh, during weather like that, you need shelter. And so these uh, clay-daubed uh, houses, they were actually daubed even over the roof dome. So they were uh, very warm, and the fire in the center would heat the house up to be almost unbearable. And uh, then the embers would keep the house warm all night. And so the uh, this, this clay-daubed uh, dome that was then covered with uh, – like a bark panels, large panels of bark off a big cypress or big pine tree that would be like giant tiles. And so that would keep the rain off the clay daubing on the roof. And uh, also grass thatch could be used uh, for that roofing material. And so uh, there were times when the snow would fall and it would stay on the ground for two weeks. And so uh, you needed uh, shelter from the cold, uh, even in Mississippi during times like that. We had an accompanying house called a summer house that would be next door to the winter house, and it was made out of puncheon planks, which are kind of like the cedar planks uh, described in, from Oregon, but smaller and a lot of times poplar, a, 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 a tulip poplar tree uh, gets pretty big diameter and uh, splits easily. And so the summer houses would be uh, clad with just planks like that and so they wouldn't protect you from the biting north wind but they would allow some ventilation uh, summer breeze mm -hmm. that uh, was nice in the hot Mississippi summers it sounds like it Brad uh, really really interesting interesting technology building construction of winter homes all across native communities appreciate all of our guests for joining us today we are out of time we're gonna to have to wrap up the show so please join us here on Native America calling again tomorrow we'll be talking with indigenous recipients of the MacArthur Genius Grant hope you'll tune in I'm Sean Spruce Native Forward Scholars Fund scholarships are open now. Native Forward supports Native students' higher education journeys, offering over 40 scholarship opportunities, programs, and resources designed for Native students. Info and applications at nativeforward.org who support this show. Frybread, that's the message. Support by Val's Frybread, providing her famous frybread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at valsfrybread.com. Frybread that will take you home available wherever you live. Hoka ilat nausun gatun pinit gatun su aulukiki. Emirilskakikin kakwanikwa emirilskak mutsutnun. Pinkhtsuki mutsutnik ilatn kink matnsu. Nasunrit vzariku kanshutki muzvik nitalilra. Paksiku healthcare.gov.
Kwatlo kaya ka ako luku 1-800-318-2596 Una kingo ng kaktokwakanda centers for Medicare and Medicaid services Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.